0: Okay, so, this morning we were looking at natural law, and in the context of natural law I've touched a few times on um, sexual intercourse. Today, this afternoon, we're going to look directly at the question of contraception. So one single focus, but actually in that one issue, contraception, uh, there actually is kind of in the negative all the other things. So if you're clear about why contraception's wrong, you're also going to be clear about why homosexuality is a misuse of the sexual order. Um, and similarly, even why remarriage, um, likewise, is a contradiction to what sexuality is about. Now, I've given you some notes here. Um, I've actually, we're not going to go through them in order. We're going to go through them slightly differently. So if we can start with page six of the notes we've got there. Now, page six, uh, this is um, a handout I gave to my parishioners when I preached on contraception. Um, And I would be saying this is something we should be preaching about sometimes. You've got to be gauging when and where. I think I was in my parish three years before I preached on it. I didn't go in on the first Sunday. um, (laughs) (laughs) But I did get a lot of flack. I can remember one very angry couple saying... You know, we've not heard anything about this for thirty years, and then you come along,
1: um, and
0: you know they weren't happy at all. Um, anyway, um, so, but I think if you're going to preach about it, you also need to offer some material that gives some credence to back up what you're saying verbally. So this um, is a one sheet I gave. Uh, so just to, the top box there, I've lined up in three columns. What contraception promised? what Pope Paul VI warned would happen instead, and what natural family planning actually achieves. So first, what contraception promised. And we're all of an age, um, most of you older than me, to remember when contraception was being kind of first introduced as a remedy for society, there were things we were told would happen. And I can remember at school... Um, being told certain things that, you know, society will be better if people are using contraception. Four promises were being made, as I've listed there. First, improved husband-wife relationships. Um, That there would be less divorce and less family stress, because children are an awkward thing in a family. If you've got less children, then there'll be less divorce, less stress. Thirdly, that women would be freed from male domination, and fourthly, that there would be less abortion and less teenage pregnancy. Um, and you know, you'd be embarrassed if you were trying to say that as a prophecy uh, generation on. So Janet Smith, uh, who have quoted some of the footnotes from here, wrote a uh, seminal work in the 1990s called "Humanity Generation Later." and it was written a generation after contraception had become widespread. And so her reflections <coughs> are saying, well, we can actually look now and see what happens to society when, at a society-wide level, you use contraception. Well, what did Paul VI in 1968 predict warn would happen? He said, firstly... Contraception would introduce a barrier in the relationship between a husband and wife. It wouldn't make things better between a husband and wife. um, So that the condom is not just a physical barrier, but actually will disrupt their dynamic. Secondly, I've noted that he warned that there would be more divorce, more promiscuity, and less family stability. And obviously at the time, he was laughed at. You know, what a ridiculous coffer to doom. Thirdly, he said women would increasingly be seen as sexual objects, that far from this being the feminist liberation of women that they thought it was going to be, it would just increase the trend for women to be seen as objects. And fourthly, that there'd be more abortion. Now, in contrast, that third column says uh, that natural family planning doesn't just say it's right, doesn't just say this is a method that isn't a sin, but it actually claims it's going to add something to their dynamic. Three points there. First, increased communication between a husband and wife. Um, Secondly, with that, less divorce. And thirdly, respecting a woman's bodily cycle and viewing her therefore as a whole. Um, And I am my priesthood have had not a huge number sadly but some couples I have taken through that transition from being users of artificial contraception to using natural family planning Um, and this is exactly what the husbands have said to me that it's changed how they look at their wife it's changed how they relate to their wife it's changed how they have to communicate so that it's helping the marriage even though it's adding a difficulty, adding a mechanism, um, but actually isn't just a burden. And I can speak from experience. Yeah. Yeah. Before I was a Catholic, we did NFP,
2: symptothermal and all, and uh, I can speak from experience. It's exactly right. mm-hmm.
0: So we have this curiosity where, you know, we, we were able to watch society do this experiment. Um, And it's been bad. Society's got worse, you know. So, a um, little subheading there, contraception and divorce. So, Janet Smith um, so quoted here, studies in the USA, um, you know, the English bishops haven't put the money, they probably have the money to do the study here. Um, studies in the USA have shown that couples <coughs> who use natural family planning have a divorce rate of between 2 and 4%, whereas the average divorce rate in America is about 50% at the time of doing the study. Um, And Janet Smith attributes this remarkable difference to two things. Firstly, uh, natural family planning's ability to foster mutual self-giving and the virtue of self-mastery gained through the use of natural family planning. So as she puts it, couples using natural family planning bear together the burden of abstaining. Both must cooperate for this method to work. It's not just that one of them takes the contraception. Um, Both of them together have to do this. And so it's helping their communication in marriage. Secondly, she notes, a damage is caused to marriage by contraception. Because she says, an act that is not open to procreation is also not truly unitive. So by attacking the procreation, you are also attacking the union between the husband and wife, so that it is therefore disunitive. So to quote her there, contraception violates the unitive as well as the procreative meanings of conjugal intercourse. Now obviously that's not meaning every couple that uses contraception is going to divorce, but it's saying there's a tendency in the dynamic that lends itself to that, that pulling apart the procreative and the unitive in the individual act, is going to have a tendency to pull us apart in the whole marriage. And certainly it's not hard to argue that at the level of our society, um, that that's exactly what we've witnessed. But she's saying actually that's what happens as a tendency in each action, in each couple, in each marriage. So after that is a kind of introductory thought. Turn to page four of the notes. I want to say a word about what the church is not teaching, um, because it's widely misunderstood. Um, That's page five. So page four that has at the top of it, open to life. A serious mistranslation. So, um, as I said there, I'm quoting their translation at the top. Each and every marital act must remain open to the procreation of human life. So that's from Humanae Vitae, paragraph eleven. Now, as I've said there, the above was a popular early translation of the 1968 text, but a mistranslation and a seriously misleading translation. So the Latin for that text, that where it's been translated as open, the Latin is per se destinatus. Well, that's very different to open. Uh, It would mean retain its natural potential or no impairment to its natural capacity. Or as I've more loosely put it, not closed. So you've not closed it, well, that's different to saying it is open.
1: It's just the same as being closed by, for instance, no
0: Yes, I'm going to come on to that, but you're right. Um, But then you've not made the closure. Um, So
2: it's also telling
0: the idea of the end and the cause. Yeah.
2: Right? The destinatus. um, Yes, yes. There is the
0: cause, the final cause. And you can see the translator thought that's a bit technical Mm -hmm. um, and tried (coughs) to translate it into open but actually is making a huge theological claim in saying open that actually isn't what the church was saying. Now, let me, um, the rest of this page, I'm trying to spell out what this means. Per se destinatus, I've said, does not imply a subjective attitude. So two things it is not saying. The couple must be desiring a child with each act of intercourse. So that isn't what the church is saying. The couple must not be planning an abortion if they conceive. So I've heard priests say, open to life, you've got to be open to life. That means you're you're not intending to have an abortion if you get pregnant. Um, Well, that might be true or good, but that's not actually what is being meant here. Further, likewise, it does not imply the objective state that the couple are fertile and this at this moment and likely to conceive. <coughs> that would be open to life, but that isn't what the church is saying. Lastly, NFP is not saying that NFP is permissible because it doesn't work and therefore the act is open to life. I've heard this um, preached about. Sincere priests who have been working on this mistranslation saying you've got to be open to life um, and, you know, NFP... Um, kind of means conceptions less likely but it's not a guaranteed mechanism and therefore you're still open to life well that isn't what the church is meaning, it's meaning actually something very different, a little more technical but quite different I've given two examples of sexual acts that remain per se destinatus to human procreation First, an act where the couple are too old to be fertile, or an act where a woman is at a time in her cycle when she's not fertile. Now, in both cases, the act in itself remains destined to this end of union and procreation. It's not able to achieve that end because the couple are too old, or she's at a time in her cycle when she's not fertile. But they haven't changed the end. Now that's very different to saying they've got to be open in the sense of wanting a child, or open in the sense of subjectively willing a child. Um,
1: Can I add a complication?
0: Yeah.
1: Imagine a scenario where you have a, a couple, married couple where uh, the woman is past. The on pause. Uh, and the man, the husband, has had a vasectomy. Right. Would the act of sexual union uh, meet the, the contingency Um He... Or should he go and have his vasectomy reversed?
0: Well, he has mutilated his body in the vasectomy. But that was a past act. Their marriage isn't going to become fertile by him reversing that process. So in his case, because they're already of an age where she's not going to conceive, it would be a procedure that would have a slight risk, as any operation does, for no gain. Um. um, It would be different if a couple were young enough where actually, um, So that just. But also, um, sterilization is a single act in the past, which isn't quite the same thing as a contraception act that is kind of an ongoing thing. So it's not quite the same analysis of the activity. Another example I'll look at in a bit might clarify further. <coughs> So, I said two examples where the act remains per se destinatus. They're not going to conceive because they're not fertile, but they remain per se destinatus to that end of what marriage is about. In contrast, some acts that are inherently unapt for procreation and thus will never be per se destinatus for life anal sex, oral sex masturbation, either alone or mutual, and homosexual acts. Now, none of those four acts has the capacity in the act to be ordered to what the act is about. Um, what if I... they form a part of the sexual act? Well, that's what I was about to add. Um, and there's a footnote there. As foreplay, um, certainly anal sex and oral sex, the old manuals, would Indicate can be um, a stage in preparation for the marital act, but if they are a completed act um, before then, then there is not the marital act. And obviously, if the man ejaculates while ha- without intending to have done so during floor playing that isn't the same thing as having intended to do so. Uh, Well, back to as we discussed last time, um, taking pleasure can be voluntary or involuntary. Um, So, and obviously there's the capacity for a lot of self-deception in that, you know. um, So there's the difference here between an act that in itself is ordered to what marriage is about but in a particular case isn't going to achieve that end because the couple aren't fertile or some actions that are just inherently unable to ever achieve that end um, like anal sex so bottom of the page there, summing that up the word open is subjective and refers to the motive of the couple in contrast, retain its natural potential Potential is objective and refers to something in the action itself. So, in this moral analysis, that's what we're concerned about. We're not concerned about the subjective attitude, that's a secondary thought. What the Church is talking about is actually an objective thing in the nature of the act itself. Now, I'm saying that as a kind of introduction to hopefully remove a misconception before we actually look at the thing itself so before I go any further just, just one, one question um,
3: the argument uh, one of the arguments used at, at the time um, of, uh, that humanity came out was that uh, when a married couple use only intending to regulate but not to exclude uh, conception at some time which they judge to be right that it would then be possible to say that um, to use the phrase the Latin phrase that it was still per se destinatus now can you just be clear with us why that argument why that argument doesn't work or was rejected, whereas um, uh, sex intercourse between a married couple at a time when a woman's cycle means that she's not fertile, why that is still, why that is deemed to be per se this artist, but the other is not.
0: I think that's going to become clear in what I'm oh, going well, to lay out. Well, that. but um, the, there's a question of a part and a total, totality in what you're saying. So the argument that was rejected by Paul VI was basically saying, well, if the marriage as a whole is open to life, then an individual act doesn't have to be. And what he's saying is, no, each individual act has to remain per se destinatus. The question we need to look at a little more specifically now is, what is per se destinatus? What is it ordered to and what thwarts that being ordered to.
2: Because okay, that was the that was, the, uh, if you will, the case made in a land of 1930, right. which permitted uh, okay. uh, married couples to yes. contracept. And then, of course, Casti can you be? Mm-hmm. Was the response in 1931, mm-hmm. which was even was prophetic of even VI,
0: of the ecology and breaking down? Yes, to be saying that in the 1930s is amazing, really, isn't it? Um, but they were using the same. The Anglicans were using the same argument. Right, right. Um, and the saying that my marriage is open in general to children, just not tonight, um, is actually focusing on the subjective more than the objective. Anyway, let's look more specifically. We're wanting to think of the question per se destinatus, destined to what? What is the end that the act is pointing to? What is the end that marriage is pointing to if we're going to know whether this particular action is pointing to us or not? Okay? So, page one of the notes I've given you, which is the logical place to begin. So here I'm shifting the focus slightly and actually thinking about marriage more than just sex. Um, and again, as I started even before that at the top, recapping, a human act is judged good if it is in keeping with the end of that activity. An unaided reason, I've said, can discern the nature of an activity, the end of an activity, and correspondingly the moral law. About governing its right use. So we're wanting to look at marriage, the marriage act, and see what is the end, the nature of that activity. So first thing there about marriage and sex uh, and the question um, of primary and secondary ends or a single good. So I said there Orthodox scholars differ in the precise details of their analysis of the ends and goods of marriage. The traditional approach distinguishes different ends and then ranks them in a hierarchy. In contrast, some modern scholars, modern Orthodox scholars, let me point out, argue that church teaching has developed on this point and now speak of a single good in marriage. Regardless, in each scheme, to thwart one end, or one meaning, is to thwart the nature of the marital act itself. So next said, it can be morally permissible to seek one end while not actualizing the other end, i.e. to seek the unitive while in the absence of the procreative. In contrast, it is not morally permissible to directly thwart one of the ends i.e. to directly thwart the procreative meaning inherent in the marital act or conversely to directly thwart the the unitive while seeking procreation so a woman wants to get pregnant but not with her husband Um, that is seeking procreation but thwarting the unitive end of the act so these two ends are there you don't have to be seeking both of them But you can't be thwarting either. Well, I'm going to spell that out a little more specifically as we go on. Uh, But before we go on, um, to note the difference in terminology here. So first I've said the traditional terminology, a hierarchy of three different ends. So marriage and the marital acts are traditionally described as having a hierarchy of three ends. First end, the procreation raising of children, and in particular, Christian children. Why did God establish the sacrament of marriage so that Christian generations might proceed? At a society level, what is marriage about? It's about the raising up of the next generation and having a place where the next generation can grow up secure. Secondly, it's about the union of the couple for themselves, for their benefit. And thirdly, it's about the remedying of concubiscence. Right? To not burn with passion, as St Paul puts it. And that is obviously the least glorious purposes, uh, ends of marriage, but it is an end of marriage. And here in confession, over the years, you know, I see, actually it's not a glorious thing, but actually men need, a, or a lot of men need a place where they're not going to burn with passion. That they're going to be able to Use that properly directed.
2: And that is the actual sequence in the marriage, the solemnization, the matrimony, in the book of common prayer. Mm. Is
0: it right? You know, mm. mm. Firstly,
2: it was pretty good at a uh, second, that, and then that, and so Right. And so uh, we. I've said this a hundred times. You would have <laughs> <laughs> right. it. Was <laughs> or as a remedy against sin. Yeah. yeah. Right. Not Which like brute beasts.
0: Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Now that hierarchy of three ends, which order it comes in, depending, depends what angle you're looking at it. If you're looking at it on how marriage serves society, then the order into children comes first. Obviously if you're looking at it from the angle of what you as a young man are looking for, well you don't go to a young woman and say, I would like a child, you know, you, you go to the young woman seeking her. and knowing that that has an ordering to children. So where this ranks depends on which question you're asking. Um, if you're asking what you as your subjective motive are bringing, well you're seeking a spouse, through the spouse openness to children and a place where your concupiscence will be remedied. Um. Okay, second Terminology. So, Humanae Vitae, the <clears throat> encyclical of Paul VI in 1968, addressing this question, he doesn't list a hierarchy of ends. He lists these two ends together, the procreative and the unitive. He says these two meanings, is the term he uses, are inseparable. Not that they are one over the other. What he is arguing is you can't separate them. Um, Thirdly, there's an argument used by (coughs) by Jermaine Griset and a lot of other orthodox scholars, um, though I think in the light of um, the homosexual marriage debate, actually this argument has less impetus now. Um, But he argues that marriage consists of a single good that includes both the unitive and the procreative. Um, My analysis is, in the, in the light of this whole same-sex marriage discussion, the question of the ordering to children um, has suddenly become much more obvious as a thing that makes a man-woman union different to two men together. That two men together can be seeking union, but their bodies aren't able to seek a child together. And is
2: this also not a sort of a general tendency of People who don't like the idea of order or sense of priority, they like the idea of things being equal. There's a sort of an equal bias, a quality bias. They're both equal, but they're inseparable. So, yeah. and then there's those who don't like to have priority without
0: that certainly quality without priority. That certainly fits into a, a model there. And Germaine Griset is an American uh, land of the equality and yeah. everything that. So I sus—I suspect there's other stuff going on there as well. But, um, but you can certainly imagine in the old... A hundred years ago, everything having different hierarchies would have seemed very natural. Um, whereas now we kind of shy away from the thought of ranking things in hierarchies. Anyway, so, traditional terminology, different terminologies, um, all saying though, that both the unitive and procreative have to be there. Nice little subheading there. Natural law holds that unnatural acts are wrong. Unnatural acts. So you have an action, you analyse it, and you say this is contrary to nature, this is an unnatural act. That means it's wrong, it's evil. Now the nature of the marital act, what is its nature? What is the end that it's aiming it. It's an act of mutual self-giving inherently and inseparably ordered to both union and procreation. So this is what Paul VI um, taught. He said contraception is unnatural because it deliberately thwarts one of the meanings of the act. So I've spelt that out further at the bottom there. Two ways you can violate the meaning of the marital act. A. Concerning union. So you seek sex without lifelong union. That's contrary to the unit of purpose that God has established in sex. So you've violated that end of union. B. Concerning procreation. Let's read to what I've said. Not every marriage bears fruit in children, but every marriage remains ordered towards children. And a marriage that intended to never have children would not actually be a marriage. Similarly, not every sexual act leads to children, but every sexual act remains ordered towards children. To directly oppose the procreated meaning by artificial contraception is to directly violate the meaning of the marital act. Um, Okay, let's spell this out a bit further on the next page, page two. Um, So, the duty to procreate and responsible parenthood. So, you know, uh, Pope Francis was recently quoted saying that Catholics shouldn't breed like rabbits. Um, And, you know, this, although that's a very colloquial turn of phrase, it's actually what the church has been saying before. So in the sacrament of marriage, the couple receive a mission. So the sacrament of holy orders configures a priest for mission. The sacrament of marriage configures the couple for mission. What is the mission they are configured to? It orders them to the offspring and raising of new children in the family of God. In general, the procreation of new life is a good thing. And by getting married, a married couple commit themselves to be fruitful and multiply. And they should only seek to avoid pregnancy for good reason. Nonetheless, as Humana says, if there are well-grounded reasons for spacing births arising from physical or psychological condition of husband or wife, or from external circumstances, The Church teaches that married people may then take advantage of the natural cycles imminent in the reproductive system and engage in marital intercourse only during those times when they are infertile, thus controlling birth in a way that does not in the least offend the moral principles which we have just explained. I'm now wanting to clarify my terms here and actually say what does the church mean by the phrase natural family planning so in natural family planning a couple seek to postpone or avoid pregnancy but to seek to do this by using a method that respects the nature of the marriage act whereas contraception changes the marital act by an action that directly renders it infertile in contrast In natural family planning a couple do not directly change the act itself. In NFP a couple abstain from sex when the wife is fertile and enjoy the marital embrace when she is not. This involves the couple charting medical signs that indicate the wife's fertility. Um. So what is the moral difference between natural family planning and contraception? As I've said here, the difference does not lie in the intention. So in both cases, the intention is the same, to not procreate as a result of this particular act of sexual intercourse. The difference does not lie in the end. In both cases, it's the same end. No child at this moment. The difference lies in the means to be. In contraception, the couple engage in an act they have altered, altered in a way that violates the inherent meaning of the sexual act, which is both unitive and procreative. They have rendered <coughs> the act infertile by an act, either, as Janet Smith distinguishes it, an act either before or during or <coughs> after intercourse. Those are all different forms of contraception. Um, <coughs> In contrast, in natural family planning, the couple either abstain from sexual intercourse, if she's fertile, or they engage in an unaltered act of sexual intercourse. In both cases, the acts they do engage with have not been altered in any way. This is the next the key point. Abstaining when fertile does not thwart the nature of an act used when infertile. It remains an ordinary act of intercourse. The nature of the act has not changed. Its finality is not tampered with. So let me spell it out a bit more specifically. Um, To have sexual intercourse when you're not fertile is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with it you're not fertile, you know you're not fertile there's nothing wrong with having sex then. to abstain from having sex when you are fertile is not sinful or generally speaking is not sinful so abstaining from sex isn't sinful having sex when you're infertile isn't sinful
1: when could abstaining be sinful?
0: Uh, Well, it could be, though that might be Yes, but you're right. So if the wife kind of punishes her husband by um, no sex tonight, then yes, that could be. In this context, I'm more thinking of um, a couple could plan to never, ever, ever have a child by using NFP. So they're not ever going to use a condom, they're not ever going to take the pill, but they are never going to have a child. So that would not be a marriage. That
1: would not be a marriage. No. And if that could be proven, then the Church would
0: have no disagreement with d- that? A, a, a d- d- declaration of nullity, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, if that was the intention from the beginning, then that wouldn't be a marriage.
3: Sorry, what if is, what, what it's the intention of one of the couples and that
0: was something that they did not declare at the time of the marriage? That's a canon law question rather than a. <marriage> but um, that would invalidate the marriage because they've got to both be seeking yeah. that to make it a marriage, it's got to be mutual
2: it's a simulation of the sacrament technically one of the parties is, is simulating their good will to enter into that they're actually committing
0: fraud right, now the question in canon law is how that gets manifested in a public forum because mm. the general principle is that marriage enjoys the favour of the law so unless there's a public manifestation that this isn't a marriage, Um, Mm. it's got to be proved in the public form. Um, Public form in the sense of a church court. Mm. Um, So it might be that the wife says to her, or the wife-to-be says to her mother the night before the marriage, I'm never going to have a child, I've not told him, but I'm never going to have a child. so the fact she said to her mother beforehand and she then later testifies to that in a church court um, would be a public manifestation. But if she never told anybody that's what she was planning, um, that's more difficult to ascertain. Mm-hmm. And, and how, the, how the canon lawyers deal with that, I'm not sure it's the might.
3: This may be something for next time to talk about the special case of a confession. What if she contracepts without him knowing, um, by using the pill, for example? Right. Then so he, he thinks, and, and to all intents and purposes, that they're having sex, which is open
0: to procreation. Mm-hmm. But she knows it's not. Then he doesn't bear any guilt for that. No. Um, that is actually one of the things we'll look at. Uh, Principles of cooperation. When one couple, because it takes two people to have sex, it takes two people to be, but to use contraception, only one of them needs to be using a contraceptive. Mm. If the other party knows, at what stage are they morally liable? And it in part depends what method of contraception. Um, and some are, you know, so to take the pill with an abortion, abortion patient. Um, is a, a much greater gravity um, than contraception that's has been patient
1: well the use of a prophylactic if the primary use of a prophylactic is to protect against I don't know HIV is it is it permissible to say it's not being used as a
0: contraceptive um, the question in this context is what has happened to the act itself the act itself is no longer a, mar- uh, a marital act. So um, this is a point that is admittedly more debated. Um, so there are a small number of Orthodox Catholic theologians who would argue contrary to what I'm now saying, but the vast majority would say condomistic sexual intercourse is no longer, uh, properly speaking, a marriage... It's not capable of being ordered to the end that the act is about. Now, the fact that your subjective motive is to avoid HIV being transmitted doesn't change the fact that the act in itself is no longer what sex is about. So,
1: what would be the options open to the couple?
0: Absolutely. I I think in part your analysis depends on how likely you think you are to transmit HIV. Um, Now with various treatments for HIV, I think there's another... You could say it's acceptable to take that risk. Um, But I think if I loved my wife and I knew I had HIV, I'd abstain. And that wouldn't mean it would be easy. But... um, There are many activities we engage in in which there is a risk of death. Um, And there would be one argument that would say, um, yes, my my wife and I know there is a risk of her contracting a deadly disease from me, and we accept that risk. But obviously if you're married and that's an ongoing risk, the percentage likelihood of that transmission happening you know, There's a difference between one occasion and many... But if you take the sexual
1: act out of the marriage... Right. Then there's an argument that the marriage doesn't
0: exist. Um, if, the, if you took the sexual act out of the marriage at the beginning, okay, then it wouldn't be consummated. But there are all kinds of health conditions where a couple are no longer able to... And it doesn't cease to be a marriage.
1: Although I am not terribly
3: naive here as a, a single person, um, but I don't quite see how, in the course of a, a marriage, you can easily sort of make this.
1: <laughs>
3: well
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I get the question I mean the, one of the things that I've learnt a lot in preaching about contraception among other things uh, and I have a, a, a family in the parish where they are um, NFP instructors to others um, that there are lots of couples out there who for no moral reason don't have sexual intercourse at all after a certain age, that it just fades out of the marriage relationship. Um, And they will look at this people like this couple in my parish and be amazed that it's still uh, obviously a big thing in their relationship because they're having to chart her cycle all the time, Um, whereas there are others who the reverses. The case where, and until very late in life, um, the sexual a- element in the marriage is is ongoing and very important.
1: Wasn't your question a question about d- discussing into the details? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I. But, but as you grew together, my, my own experience is that after having been married now for many, many years, um, Increasingly, my wife and I have been able to discuss it into detail. It wasn't easy when we were 1st married, of course, but as you grow together, it becomes easier. I mean, that must be one of the
3: difficulties and lack of being able to discuss these things. I mean, people seem to think these days it's so much easier because all the taboos are broken, but it isn't the case. No, it isn't the case. People, people should, one, one would assume that, that after sort of 40 years... Of anything else that that couples in particular would find it incredibly easy to to, to talk about, you know, talk about themselves, talk about what turns them on, talk about what should we do, what shouldn't we do. Yeah. But my impression uh, over forty years is the reverse is well, true. That, that young people, young people find it incredibly difficult to yeah. be at ease with each other change. in talking about the things which. Which really matter. But we're talking
1: cross purposes. Aren't we? Ah, yeah, yeah.
3: I think I think as you get older <coughs> within the
1: marriage, you find it easier to discuss. Yes, yes, yeah, I, I, yes I suspect there's, there's no difference between youngsters now and youngsters many years ago. In the early, yes, in yes. The early stages of your marriage, then you are. Oh, well, I think it's quite normal normal to be incredibly uh, embarrassed by all kinds of things. The things which as you grow in
0: marriage. And there are, there are many couples that don't grow in marriage. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think part of Janet Smith's analysis is contraception facilitates that yes. failure to communicate, okay. yeah. that you can have an aspect of your life that actually you don't need to communicate. Yes, I can see that. Well, see, the thing
2: about NFP, or National Planning of the Method, is the, ver- the various uh, symptoms or the various markers in a woman's fertility cycle, uh, when you do engage in that, either to get pregnant or not to get pregnant, this my wife and I use that, uh, trying to get pregnant, And but the thing is the level of intimacy that occurs as a result of that, because you're doing it together, all the charting and everything, there are th- I'm, I'm not going to go into anatomical detail, but there are three, there are four uh, in modern conceptions uh, um, that are, are involved all pertain to the woman's body, but it does not get any more intimate than that, and therefore the couple grow much more closely together. Because of that intimacy, the man knows her better than he knows himself. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. level of biology and psychology. But what about the couple that they're not both Catholics?
0: Um, So we're going to touch on that actually in the context of the hearing confessions thing, but um, can we first look at the, the question of what contraception is uh, before we look at the question of what to do when one of them, when they disagree about what's right and wrong? Because that's a real scenario. I want us to first have a clear sense of what is right, what is wrong, and some sense of why, why is this being said. Um, But before we move on, just to point out in case you don't all know that there are... So the church talks about natural family planning, meaning it's natural. It uses knowledge of the woman's fertility. There are many rival medical schemes for that. um, And the church doesn't say this is the one. So the Billings method is one. um, The Crichton method is another in the States. Semi thermals on the one the temperature base temp, basal
2: temperature, tri- three have um, four markers. Basal just, temperature. Yeah. Uh, the the position of the cervix, uh, cervical mucus, and uh, uh, maybe it's three. Basal temperature change that you measure certain times a day. You have you measure it. Mm, it sure, so, the so marked point four <laughs> degrees. <laughs> It's that which indicates the luteinization has occurred, where you've got the luteinizing hormones gone up, therefore you've got, you've got ovulation. It, it's all
0: well, it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point I wanted to make, though, is that um, there are different medical determinings of whether the woman is fertile or not. And the church isn't saying this is the methic- medical process, it's saying ethically, you're Seeing whether she's fertile rather than changing the act to make her infertile. Um, interestingly, some of the most uh, heated arguments I've heard have been between people of different methods. <laughs> so, so they're both using natural family planning but disagreeing about you know, your method rate is 97%, ours is 99%, and um, predictable and whatever. Anyway, so. Um, what's the point you're using natural family plan to repeat what I was saying before what are you doing you are abstaining when you are fertile there's nothing wrong with abstaining when you're fertile presuming you've got an illicit reason to not be seeking a child not just a selfish reason um, so interestingly the church doesn't spell out what grave reasons would be it does use the phrase serious so not just trivial reasons But it could be serious economic reasons, health reasons, psychological reasons in terms of the health of one of the spouses. There's a reason for you not to be seeking a child. So how do you do that? Well, you abstain when you know she's fertile. And there's nothing wrong with abstaining. Your abstaining when she is fertile does not change the act when she is infertile. And so you engage in the act when she is infertile and it is an unaltered act, it's not being thwarted in any sense. The, the end of the act, the per se destinatus, remains in place. You've not attacked the end of the act. Would in
3: fact be a fact the, uh, uh, point, uh, in in natural law? To the fact that um, human women, mm. uh, you know, human beings who aren't women, um, are women, are not are, are not three hundred and sixty five days a year fertile. No.
2: Yeah.
3: So that so that what we're saying is that by is is that by uh, is that um, when we when we look at what is what is natural to human beings, uh, a woman has both a fertile and an infertile um, period, which would seem to suggest that uh, that a woman is not to conceive you know in every act of right. of, of intercourse it, it, it was just a thought that that natu- that naturally when we look at the way that human beings are actually made that fertility all the time
0: it, is not natural the, the, okay. the, the, yes right. uh, whether that 's a result of The fall or not is another question. Well, back to the remedy for concupiscence. So Um, so why is it that a husband and wife seek sexual intercourse um, when they're not going to have a child? Is it not said that because the reason the reason for that is that because all
3: animals, all female animals have this period of further infertility, those who do not fall pair bonds, the female is not receptive,
0: except when she's on heat those that do form hair ho- bonds need to have a continuum mechanism on which the couple stay together for the sake of
3: raising the children who require extra care do up to their up to
0: I've not heard that spelled out quite that way but I can, I can see that logic um, Apparently, yeah.
2: and there is certainly a fact that, that women do uh, there, there tends to be a higher with libido during the
0: the right. um, okay, um, page three of the notes. So this is actually the last page for us to look through. Um, so it says, page three at the bottom, at the, the top it says, respecting the purposes built into our nature. So I'm wanting to kind of look a little more closely. Why is it important that I respect the ends built into my nature? So, I don't think it's too difficult to say we can see that marriage is about union and procreation. We can see that the Marriage Act is about union and procreation. Why does it really matter that I respect that end um, in my activity? At the top, though, I've quoted from Humana Vitae there's a need for reverence due to the whole human organism and its natural function reverence I've said that Janet Smith makes this comparison she compares seeing through an eye that is partially blind through no fault of your own or engaging in a marital act that you know to be infertile but you haven't caused it to be so comparing that with deliberately blinding yourself or Deliberately making yourself infertile. Mm. In both of these second examples, there's been a direct thwarting of the purpose of the bodily organ, thus opposing the good of the person inherent in that purpose, and simultaneously thwarting the intention of the Creator. So, back to the eye. You know, I don't have great eyesight. Um, I take my glasses off, and actually, you're kind of there. Um, If I'd lost my glasses today, it would not be a sin for me to see as well as I can with this eye. I have a partially blinded eye, partially able to do what it's aiming to do. I've not thwarted its ability to see. That would be very different to me causing my eye to be this unable to function. So, I am using my eye in as much as it is able to be used, um, even though it's not fully functioning. And Janet Smith is saying that's like engaging in the marital act, knowing that it's not fully functioning, it's not fertile at this time, it's partially functioning, the unitive dimension is there, um, and I know that's the case, but I haven't directly caused it, I haven't directly damaged it. And in that direct damaging she's saying by opposing that health of the bodily organ you're opposing the good of the person inherent in the organ, inherent in the patterns that the creator has built into its function. I've spelled that out following her argument in four points next. Firstly, an organ has a function that it is naturally ordered to. She says this function can be discerned by observing the purpose it in fact accomplishes when it is healthy and functioning properly. She notes further, uh, it's interesting, about evolution. She says that evolution backs the notion that body parts each have a teleology, an end, a function, because natural selection adapts each specific organ, organ in order to be useful in a particular environment. So your organ has a function that it's ordered towards. Secondly, she says, there's no shame in having an organ that fails to function. Three, there is nothing wrong in using an organ that's not achieving its function or its full function. But four, there is something wrong in deliberately thwarting the natural ordination of an And why she says because we must respect the purposes that are built into our nature by the Creator. Um, So this thing about reason, law, nature—that the Creator has put these purposes and functions uh, into what we have. What if we introduce the word faith into some of this? In terms of. engaging in the marital
3: act that, you know, to be infertile, but having not caused to be so, right?
1: Um, in my own family, my nephew married a young girl who is actually infertile, medically proven, mm-hmm. that. but they're both Catholic
0: and their faith in every mar- um, sexual encounter, intercourse,
3: they both... Have the faith that maybe just God may be able to do something?
0: I don't think that's what makes it morally right. right. Um, okay. So they haven't caused their infertility, mm-hmm. um, they've not thwarted the end there, of the act. It would be like someone who's partially blind.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you might want to be able to see, and if they're going to have a lifetime of not being fertile, chances are they're going so to. Yes, I um, but I'd say they, their act doesn't become moral because they're open or no. hoping for a yeah. child yeah. It, it, it's moral because they haven't caused the infertility
2: okay.
0: they haven't attacked the end built into the purpose of the act mm. but
1: just pure simple.